My name is Huffa Fropes Cross. I'm the project manager of the Tom Wesselman Digital Catalog Resne and Corpus at the Wildenstein Plattner Institute. And I am here with Jeffrey Sturgis, who is the director of exhibitions at the estate of Tom Wesselman, and Connie Glenn, who we will be talking to uh, today, continuing our interview from our previous session. Um, and I think what I'd like to start with today, I, I'm not sure if you had a chance to see it yet, Connie, was the uh, article that you had recommended from Mario Amaya on, uh, on your collection uh, in Kansas City, with the, with, which actually had photos also of the collection installed. And so after consulting that, I know we've talked a bit, quite a bit about your collection, but I thought it was a unique opportunity to be able to actually see where, for example, the Wesselman works that you owned were in your house. You actually see them very well displayed in this article. So I wondered if you could, do you have the article by any chance or do you, do you want me to go get it? I mean, if you, if, if you have it, I also sent it to you digitally, but if it's easier for you to physically get I it. I can just go pick up the book if you like. Sure. Then we can look at it together. Yeah. Okay, great. So yeah, on the, on the first, there's the first illustration in this, uh, which actually has GAN 29, which, which we talked about last time. Yeah. And I wondered if you could just kind of talk about how this work, how you ended up placing this work, uh, you know, in your home. I see here it's, it's, pictured above your fireplace, how it sort of sat within everything else that was in that environment in your house and why you chose to put it there. Notice the antique bank on the mantel and its particular placement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that not funny? I, I did not notice that. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's very strategically placed. Uh, None of that, nothing in that living room is not strategic. Uh, I loved the article because Mario just nailed us with no trouble at all. We collected everything and that room is uh, the perfect uh, sort of statement about collecting everything from uh, 18th and 19th century um, Furniture to uh, furniture destined for a mission-style house. To we collected Oriental rugs in in the dining room. We actually had the rug that was created for the house uh, because it was huge. Um, it was twenty some feet long. Um, but in and on the table um, to the left of the fireplace are the Renaissance bronzes that we were collecting at the time, working with Ted Coe at the Nelson Gallery. And uh, we collected kitsch, um, which Mario loved and which I loved. I, I have never at any point in my life uh, not been collecting something. Uh, and it's a process um, that is really, I think collecting is about education. And I think how well you collect and um, how interestingly you collect has to do with how much information uh, you can absorb while you're doing it. And generally, when I have all the information, I'm through. 
I go on to the next collection. And that's what Mario pointed out. He pointed out at the end of the article that we were kind of all over the map with all of these collections. And uh, he would expect when he came back to see us the next time to find an entirely different house, which he, which did happen. Um, I, I loved Mario and I loved this article and it's the best article that's ever been written about us or the collection. And it remained true forever, um, which is why I wanted you to see it. Um, why did I put her over the fireplace? Um, I don't really know. The, um, the walls in that room, if you were to see it, uh, they're broken up on either side of the fireplace by doors that lead onto an enormous screen porch uh, that we used a lot. And the opposite wall uh, is the wall that, um, it has a little bit to do with size. The opposite wall has to have floor to ceiling. And um, to turn the page for two pages, and there's a small picture of Jack and me uh, with the uh, Wesselman Tondo, that's the opposite wall. And those things all had to have floor to ceiling. And this was in an era when most people who lived in nice houses put their furniture against the wall. <laughs> this was the beginning of uh, in attractive houses, you pull all your furniture out from the wall so you can have tall things. Um, but you would, at this point in time, I mean, I was trained as an interior decorator. And at this point in time, in a typical house, you would have seen a sofa on one wall and two chairs on the opposite wall and a coffee table in the middle, uh, which is what we were running from at high speed. Does that explain why it's over the fireplace? Yeah, I mean, just, I, I think so, yeah, to some degree. I, I guess the thing that I was also interested in is that you had talked about all of these, as, as you're saying now, all of these different discrete kind of pursuits that you had had in collecting, and they all kind of come together in, your house and they come together particularly, as you've said, in this image. I noticed also the pillows, right? The the Schlitz and the Campbell soup. I had those made. You had those made? Yeah. Yeah. Jack's business had a fabrication ability because of several different types of fabrication, uh, not only bowling shirts, but um, they had a screen door manufacturing plant. They could do almost any kind of fabrication. So. Uh, when uh, the Green Street Dragons, uh, the bowling, Ivan's Bowling Club wanted shirts, Jack made, had shirts made for all the members of the club. And then Andy wasn't a member of the club, but he wanted a shirt, so he made another one for Andy. And um, it, there are all kinds of issues of fabrication that involve Tom. Uh, Jack worked on the fabrication of the... Um, the radio on the shelf with the apples or oranges, whatever, on the side. Uh, Tom had initially chosen a bouquet uh, for one of those wall uh, images, wall home units, and he wanted to flock the flowers. And uh, Jack found somebody to flock the flowers for him. And we, <laughs> Tom got the flowers and didn't like flocking. So uh, they didn't end up being flocked flowers, but there was always some, uh, you'll, you'll have to die laughing, but um, most people didn't have access to a miniature tape recorder at that time. 
and Tom was making, uh, I, I didn't know it until Christmas, but Tom was making a miniature of the shelf uh, image with the radio in it for me, and Jack got a, uh, a pocket tape recorder, uh, a, top, a pocket uh, audio, um, what do you call those things? Um, a, a small size um, listening device, um, very small. And uh, Tom, and it was to go, it, it was in fact put in that uh, uh, particular item, uh, and I presume is still there. <laughs> but uh, Tom remarked at the time that he wouldn't dare take, show it to George Siegel because George would make him give it to him. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I had no idea that, that, that Jack's business was as involved in Jacqueline's business was as involved in making items for Tom's work early on. That's really interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Um, so were the, so were those those the the tape recorder was that for that that was for one of the works that actually had sound integrated? Yes, it's um, how, um, Jeffrey. How can I identify the four inch square? Um, small let me let me look and see. there's a little connie there's a little still life in one of the photo in one of the pictures of your house yeah. is that the little still life you're talking about i'm looking up the information it's a black and white little still life number 27 1964 five and a half by five and a half by three and a half including flowers construction polymer paint varnished with liquitex sony radio um purchase so i think that is the one that's in the in the photograph in the magazine right yes. the black and white one amazing um let's see if i go to the black and white photograph if it's there yeah oh it's 226 page 226 right yeah oh yeah that's it yeah yeah the the uh two of the three things in that those are the mission things that we collected um and, and we collected like store mission store items. We had a wine rack. At, well, it wasn't wine rack. We had a, um, a thing with. Uh, it had been a ribbon rack when it was invented in the 19th century. We used it for a wine rack, and this is one of the other pieces from the store fixtures that were mission. And we brought my favorite ones to California and, and of course couldn't be, we were not in a mission house and we didn't have room for them and I was we were in the process of hiring an architect and building a house and so I had I had garage sales every time I moved because I changed my living environment by time or period every time we moved which was generally about every three to five years I mean I'm living in my 46th or 47th house now um, and so when we changed from mission to super contemporary, um, I had a garage sale. My garage sales were famous in uh, Laguna Beach. And my best friend in Laguna uh, bought most of the mission things, including that cabinet and the wine rack. Uh, and, so, and they all burned in the Laguna fire. Oh. So they're all gone. Hey Connie, could you talk a little bit about those those um, that Schlitz those pillows that you had made? Because there's, I mean, in terms of what you're collecting, 
I understand what you were saying about this idea of it's like you're educating yourself. So you educate yourself about the mission furniture or the Renaissance sculpture or different kinds of paintings. But what does it mean when you make something that's like an ersatz Warhol and put it on the couch? Like, what is that? Uh, How do you sort of about, see that? It's like, it's, yeah. Well, it's about, uh, and this is really, really important to me. Pop, it's about pop art as a lifestyle. Uh, people. So it's the idea that you can participate. Yeah, it's a, it's the participating. It's, um, it's almost like you're sharing a secret language. Um, Ivan Carp used to say that there were, um, at that time, uh, 250 people seriously collecting art. And so of those 250 people, you knew a whole lot of them. And uh, a, quite a, a number of them lived in Kansas City, where I lived. So we had... We had an outrageous pop art party that ended up in the New Yorker, um, <laughs> but it it and we had um, an Al Hansen happening on the mar in the marble walled entry to the Nelson Gallery uh, due to uh, one of our friends who was participating, Molly McGreevy being able to talk her father, who was a trustee of the Nelson Gallery, into allowing us to um, do detrimental things to the great entry of the gallery. And so we had a happening there. That, and it was, uh, uh, people came and stayed in my house and my house was a happening. I mean, Al Hansen wow. uh, cut up, her, he made collages of Hershey bars. He was very famous for that. He, he was a founder of happenings like Alan Capro, but uh, mm -hmm. he he stayed in my guest room and cut up Hershey bars and and my wrappers in my guest bed, and I found uh, pieces of Hershey wrappers in my guest bed thereafter. Um, <laughs> and uh, at one, I can remember at one time um, Al Hansen and Malcolm Morley and. Uh, Wayne and Betty Jean Tebow, and probably Paul Waldman, Diane Waldman's husband and artist. Uh, they were all in the house at the same time. Uh, and uh, I would squeeze my children into one place and squeeze two or three other people into another place. It, it was not a big house, uh, but it, um, it absorbed people nicely, and we could do we could participate your notion of participation is is very good uh, i would not have been interested in collecting french impressionist painting the people involved were as important to me as the images they created and um the i i don't when i write about it i always call it the pop art lifestyle um Right. But it was among a small group of people, a hugely participatory thing. I mean, think about the Bianchini Gallery um, grocery store exhibition uh, in 1964, which I, unfortunately I did not see, but I recreated it in my gallery. Um, but 
the mere idea that all these people would, Dorothy was Dorothy Herska at the time, not Dorothy Lichtenstein. Uh, she met Roy in the course of creating that exhibition. And Paul Bianchini was always running back and forth between New York and Paris. And um, Ben Barillo was very active in the gallery uh, when Paul was in Paris and Dorothy was active in the gallery. And all of these, Ben Barillo had a lot of the things that were in that show fabricated for that show. And yet they, one of the women who was involved was the gal who made uh, fake meat for refrigerators uh, for advertising purposes. She wasn't even involved in pop art. They just needed some meat to put in the refrigerator. <laughs> so she is, is listed as one of the artists. Uh, but again, these, these are all about events. Yeah. Um, Right, and, and, and there is something really interesting about what you're saying. It, it reminds me of our previous conversation when you talked about the advice that you got, I think it was from John Weber, not to buy you know, abstract expressionism right. or not to already buy established artists, right? That this idea that participating in pop art was possible as a collector at the time in a way that being a collector of something else would not be being not just an owner of objects, but part of a social world, right? I mean, that... Even at that point in time, we couldn't have afforded the abstract expressionist things. You will notice in one of the pictures, let's see, where's the dining room? Uh, we finally did buy a small jacuning, just because we couldn't resist it. But it was, uh, let's see, where is the picture at the end of, maybe it's not in these pictures. Yeah, I guess it's not in these pictures, but uh, we did buy a, a very small, uh, about eight or nine inches square uh, de Kooning that hung in our dining room, uh, just because we just loved it. Uh, but it, it wasn't part of the main scene. Uh, the interesting thing about pop art and that house was it had an infinite quality to absorb stuff. If you uh, type the address into your computer, you can see a current picture of it uh, from the real estate agent from Zillow. And it's, two, it's about three quarters of a block long. And it had, um, I think, seven bedrooms and uh, sort of an equal number of bathrooms. It had huge playrooms. It had, I was afraid to go down the basement. It was so creepy. It had a coal furnace with a chute where coal was delivered. It was half electric and half gas uh, because when the house was built, um, they didn't think electricity was here to stay. Uh, we had the gas fixtures all turned off. Um, but you could just keep bringing things into that house and it absorbed them in the most wonderful way. And it was also a great house to party in. Um, I, I, have not, I have not lived in a house that I loved as much as I love that one to this day. Uh, when my kids pass through Kansas City, they always drive by um, uh, and wave. Uh, I thought that my son Christopher, who was born six months before we left that house, had never seen the inside, and we made an, um, 
when we sold it, we sold it just to the first friend on the list. It would never made it to a real estate agent. There were a lot of old friends who wanted the house. And um, I thought Christopher had never seen the inside of the house. And he had a pop art bedroom. And Mary, I was really, really interested in design simultaneously. And that was my, my background. And so he had a total Mary Mekko, um, uh design research um, design research began in Boston and ended up with a fabulous store in New York and, and including Mary Mecco. And so he, I wanted him to see his design research, Mary Mecco bedroom. And we made an appointment with a real estate agent to go see it because uh, it was for sale. And this is about, I guess, seven or eight years ago. And we got there and, and, entering the steps to take us up to see the house the real estate agent broke her ankle and we never got to see the house she fell on the steps no (laughs) uh, i christopher thinks he has seen it i'm not sure whether he has seen it or whether he's seen a lot of pictures one other thing i know but the house played a really big role in the collecting the one thing I noticed about is, you know, the sort of eclectic way you were, you that you collected and and uh, brought all these objects together is so close to what you see in Wesselman's painting in terms of bringing old things and new things together and mixing different kinds of styles. Did you? Well, that's a great observation. Maybe that's why I liked them so much. Well, that's what I was wondering. And even looking at that great American nude on the. Uh, you know, above the fireplace, and you see the mantle with those objects placed just in front of the painting. You can sort of see them as almost like a transition right in, like between the world of the painting and the world of your living room. They're, it just it just seems so seamless. And I was wondering if you got inspiration from the kinds of juxtapositions that Tom was making, or you noticed those juxtapositions as something very sympathetic to your to your taste. It, it wasn't thought out. It happened. Yeah. Um, I think clearly because my real background before art history and before collecting and before anything else was design. And uh, you can see my interest in design in virtually everything in that house. Yeah. Um, and I had had several jobs before we ever begin, began collecting. As an adult, I had had several jobs in design. I taught design in a small college in Texas where Jack was in the Air Force. And I, um, as I said before, I worked with an architect. Uh, who was building a development. Um, I, with a college friend, he and I designed a house um, a few months after Jack and I were married and the house was built in the three years when we were gone in uh, Texas and in Europe. And it was what would now be called mid-century modern, of course. I have one child who is deeply devoted to mid-century modern still. Um, But the fact that, you know, I would build a house when I was 23 was sort of weird. Um, But design meant everything to me and still does. And I think that's what you're seeing a reflection of 
and not just the art in the house, but everything else in the house. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. And I in the fact that every time I've ever moved among all those hundreds and thousands of moves is I have uh, changed styles completely. Um, because I wanted to explore the combination of other things. I did one outrageous uh, three-story condo in contemporary design from Spain. Um, the house that we design, had designed and built on the water, I did in a combination of um, the newest of contemporary furniture available in Los Angeles. Uh, combined with Chinese antiques and Chinese rugs. Wow. So I, that's working with design has been my entire life. And, and I was really miserable when pop art was over. <laughs> well, we started collecting photography. There was nothing being made. It was the whole the gap between pop art and conceptual art um, that artists were having a very hard time filling. Um, and we couldn't fill it either. I had always hoped, because we loved Ivan and Marilyn Carp, and I had always hoped Ivan's gallery would be a, con a, a continuation of uh, things that we loved. And we didn't like photorealism. So that was really hard. That's interesting. As I, I actually, in, in just a moment, I think we should move on to the, uh, another section. But one thing that occurred to me there is like, Wesselman, for example, was obviously producing during that kind of interstitial period. Um, and so were other pop artists, even though pop art itself was kind of dispersing. Were, did you continue to be interested in, in their work or Wesselman's work during that? Oh, no, yes, always. Yeah. yeah. I have been interested in, oh, what is it, the seven... I did a bunch of research that defined who the original pop artists were by taking the 12, you've read this, but taking the 12 original shows and seeing who appeared the most times and weeding that down to seven people. And I have loved and followed most all of them. And the, um, the only ones left, uh, I, I don't include Lucas Samaras as a pop artist, but we always loved Lucas's work. And I wrote about it and showed it several times. And um, I still talk to Lucas on the phone fairly regularly. And um, the only ones of that original group of people that I loved and communicated with left are Lucas and Klaus Oldenburg. Let's see, is there anybody else? Uh, oh, Wayne Tebow. Right, of course. Uh, Wayne, Wayne Tebow is not part of the New York pop art circle, but he was a, was and is a very big part of our lives. Um, we um, have been together in person, traveling together, uh, friends, visiting since 1966. Oh, wow. <laughs> this was, last, year, last year was Wayne's 100th birthday. This November 15th, he will be 101. Wow. And I went down yesterday and looked at his current exhibition at the Laguna Beach Art Museum, at the Laguna Art Museum. Well, I would, yeah. So that very broadly brings me to, I think, the, the next really big thing that I'd like to talk about, which is 
um, something we just touched on, kind of how you started on this project, but not much about the project itself, which was the big 1974 early years exhibition of Wesselman's work. Um, I wanted to talk to you about that because I went back and looked at uh, all the correspondence related to it, and uh, I discovered some stuff about it that I had either totally forgotten or didn't think. I discovered something that I had not actually been aware of by reading all of the 1970-71 correspondence. Um, well, I, there is one thing we missed in the 60s, and that was the commissioning of the foot, seascape foot. Um, and I wanted you to know when we talked about the 60s that uh, the Nelson Gallery had a print club and um, Jack talked to Tom about commissioning a print for it because Jack was chairman of the Guild of the Friends of Art at the time, uh, which would have been uh, analogous to the print club. And um, he talked to Tom about commissioning. Uh, they they had previously commissioned very um, uncontemporary things. And um, Jack and I both wanted the print club to do some um, really interesting and exploratory things. So we talked to Tom about commissioning a print for the print club and the print club okayed that. And Tom wanted to do uh, another vacuform. We had already long since purchased the vacuform nude um, uh, Great American Nude number 74, which we purchased in 1965. But Tom was still involved in vacuforming and he wanted to try a vacuform multiple. Uh, and the print club had never co commissioned a multiple, but that was really fine with everyone. So uh, Tom designed uh, and had fabricated uh, 101 of the feet. Um, and the edition was of all of the prints for the print club was always 101 because the 101 one was for the museum. Uh, and I, I looked up uh, yesterday how, how much it was. I had told somebody I thought it was sold for, at the time, for $125. It wasn't. It was sold for $28.50. Uh, I believe that the reason my acquisitions book shows uh, $28.50 is because Tom allowed it to be sold either framed or unframed. And the frame was a really cheesy copy of um, the classic Kulik frame, um, welded aluminum, the original frame. And, and this was a cheesy copy of it. So I think the extra $3.50 was for the Kulik frame. I think the print was probably $25 if you bought it unframed. And the thing that set me to looking into um, the foot was I was scrolling something on the internet and I found one for sale uh, from a dealer, uh, seemed quite knowledgeable dealer in Florida. And so I emailed, uh, it's always, you know, price by, by uh, question. And so I emailed him and asked him how much the foot was. Um, ours was not sold. It ended up, quote unquote, missing. And I do not know what happened to it. 
um, but it's gone. Um, the one in Florida was not our number. Our number was one. And um, I thought, I thought, well, maybe I can just buy, buy myself another foot. So <laughs> I asked him how much the foot was, and he said it was $17,500. So I, I wrote him back and said, not really within my budget. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it's an interesting story about the foot, and to think that you you could have had had one for twenty five dollars is it'd be interesting to know how much twenty five dollars is in today's money. Yeah, I wonder. I guess I I would assume a hundred dollars, a hundred ish dollars, right? Something in that range, maybe. I think it's around between a hundred and one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. I think. Not positive. You can we can you can do it on the computer. Yeah, but that ask. But it's uh, we were eventually priced out of our collecting. And and so that was the '60s story. I didn't want you to miss was the foot uh, back to 1970. Um, we uh, had gone twice to California on vacation and taken our girls before Christopher was born and stayed in Laguna Beach and fell in love with Laguna Beach. And when Jack decided that uh, he didn't want to be vice president of King Louie anymore, he wanted to own an art gallery. Um, the first decision was whether the gallery was going to be in New York or California. Um, and because there was a significant art scene in California at the time, largely due to Gemini, um, because the critical artists were visiting Gemini a lot of them at the time. Roy Lichtenstein spent a couple of months every winter when it got cold at Gemini. Um, and so the, there, there was significant art going on in California, not like New York, but we didn't think we maybe wanted to raise children in New York City. Uh, I had watched how difficult it was for um, Claire and Jenny. And Je only Jenny was born at that time and for Ivan and Marilyn. Um, who had small children in Soho. Um, and it struck me as being um, a really difficult way to raise children. Um, and I don't know whether that's why we decided, and everybody in my family was in love with Laguna Beach, as you, you know of a why. <laughs> Absolutely. You come from that too. Uh, and there was a business that was uh, associated with King Louis in, I think it was in Anaheim, uh, which gave Jack a kind of fallback position if moving to Laguna Beach didn't work. Um, so we finally chose Laguna and um, cho he chose Corona Del Mar for the gallery. And I don't remember why. Um, maybe it was because there was simply a good space available. It's now a rogue store. Uh, but it still has Jack Glenn Gallery etched in the glass of the entry because it's too expensive to replace the door. Uh, but um, we went to Laguna, rented a house, and went to Laguna for Christmas 1969. Uh, went home and packed up the house in Kansas City and were in um, Laguna by January 1970. And I had enrolled in, um, I have to sort of clarify the education situation, which I messed up before. 
but um, I had enrolled in UCI, the University of California at Irvine, to take a class to be given by Alan, Sol Alan Solomon, whom I was crazy about but had never met. I really loved his writing, and I, I thought generally he was the best uh, English-American writer uh, on pop art, and I, I had such huge admiration for what he had done um, at the Guggenheim, and so I was really thrilled to be able to take a class by him, and so we had to be in Laguna Beach by the time school started. And I was not out of school any given time over about 17 years. Um, it's part-time always because I was raising kids, and the only time I was ever out of school for more than a few months was when the three years Jack was in the Air Force. Um, I was out of school two of those years, I think. Um, and I, I wasn't, uh, I left my Master of Fine Arts degree, all but thesis, at the University of Missouri, and found when I came to California that there was no MA or MFA. I was enrolled in a terminal degree in uh, Kansas City, and I don't understand why they were giving art historians BFAs or MFAs, either one, and I was enrolled in the MFA program. And when I got to California, I found that there wasn't uh, a, a graduate program in art history at UCI. And the, uh, there were only two in Southern California at the time in my area, and one was at USC, where it was too long a drive for me to commute. And the other one was in at Cal State Long Beach. So I ultimately enrolled in the graduate program at Cal State Long Beach. Uh, it was a matter of what was available to me. Um, but the, the brief enrollment at UCI uh, didn't, trans didn't transpire because uh, while everybody went home over Christmas that year and we went home and packed up our house, Alan Solomon died. Uh, and the class was never given. They signed Frank Stella to teach at UCI, and when it became time for him to teach, he refused to sign the state loyalty oath, and so he couldn't teach. And Barbara Rose, to whom he was married at the time, came and taught a couple of Frank's classes. And I and the ones that I went to informally were held in her office because they apparently couldn't give her a classroom. And people sat around on the floor with the, the dogs. It was very 70s. <laughs> uh, people sat around on the floor with all their dogs and so forth. And um, sorry, Connie, what was the subject? What would why it was hard? It's hard to imagine a subject that Frank Stella and Barbara Rose could talk, teach. Um, Barbara Rose was doing a lot of writing on contemporary art at the time. She was just teaching contemporary art. And but, but, but Frank Stella was going to teach it first. Mm -hmm. And I I have no wow. idea what they asked Frank to teach. Teach. They probably simply right. asked him to come lecture, but he had to be hired, and he would not sign the California loyalty oath for the state of California. So to replace Frank, they brought, Barbara flew out, as I remember, like once a month and gave what would have been Frank's class. 
And uh, the, the one or two that I went to were in her office. And Barbara Rose and I, boy, were not on the same page at that time. Uh, she denigrated the Jack Lang Gallery in her lectures, um, which I found pretty offensive. Really? Uh, she actually yes. specifically spoke about the Jack Lang Gallery. In her oh, yeah. Well, there wasn't any other contemporary art around <laughs> in the general area. What was her what was her issue with the Jack Lang Gallery? Um, this, the work at the Jack Lang Gallery in the early 1970s was extremely eclectic. Um, it lived on what was called the back room, uh, if you're familiar with that phrase. Um, oldies and goodies uh, for sale at high prices that would fund the gallery. And uh, the young artists he, show, he showed, all of the guys, this is when he had his first show for Bruce, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, all of the guys who were studying at UCI, he gave, they all worked in the gallery and he gave them all shows. Um, and the faculty at UCI was in the art department, no art history, but the faculty in the art department was very impressive, including Bob Irwin and Tony Gallap and Practically everybody was anybody taught a class uh, at UCI. And um, oh, the other probably most famous person from that time and era, um, oh, uh, the guy who locked himself, uh, the guy who wanted Jack to kill him and who locked himself in his locker. Um, that sounds like Chris Burden, but was that? Chris Burden. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Chris Burden was, was the sort of, senior bad actor of that group. Uh, he asked Jack to shoot him and Jack declined. And he, so he hired somebody else to shoot him. Jack was his preferred shooter? Jack was his preferred shooter. And Jack was having no part of that. Um, he worked, he not only worked, Chris not only worked in the gallery, he worked transporting stuff for Jack between the house. We had a rented house in Emil Bay at the time. Uh, and Emil Bay was a gated private development in Laguna Beach, still is. And um, Chris would come and go with a truck between uh, the two houses. And when we moved out of Emil Bay into Irvine Cove, into a house that we bought, um, uh, the guard gate uh, accosted <laughs> Chris at the departure gate and said, good riddance to bad rubbish. And Chris caused trouble wherever he went. Um, I adored Bruce. Uh, I found Chris very difficult. Um, but there were a lot of, um, there were seven or eight young artists who came out of that class in UCI who went on to have uh, distinguished careers. Uh, including Bruce. Um, I just, just so for anyone listening to this. There, there is a catalog of the history of, of uh, UCI done by the Magoon Art Museum. If you want to look at all of those people and who they were and where they went. And some of them you would now know. And, and some of them like Chris are gone. And uh, it's hard for me to remember that there were 20 then. They were 20 years old then. And I think Bruce just turned. Sounds right. I just went just for our listeners. This is Bruce Richards is the, is the artist. Bruce yeah. Richards, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does sound like an incredibly 
fertile scene at UCI at that exact moment. But then, so you had that moment where you were a part of that and around the Jacqueline Gallery. Although, as I understand from our last uh, interview, you didn't have a lot of direct participation in the gallery. You kept a distance from it. Is that right? Did I understand that? I participated in the events. In the event. <laughs> I didn't I didn't hire the artists and I didn't choose the exhibition. Uh, although we both chose the early Wesselman exhibition that was in the gallery, uh, which caused a real fracas in Laguna in Laguna. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that that exhibition? Um well let me go backwards just a minute because that was uh, a little further into the Jack Glenn Gallery. But you asked me why Barbara Rose would denigrate the gallery. And I think she, um, the content of the gallery at that time was um, expensive pop art in the back room. Uh, the young group of artists from UCI and to some degree, um, new abstraction, which was a, largely at that time called color field painting. And Barbara Rose hated color field painting. Um, and she denigrated the gallery for having been active in color field painting. Um, and uh, neither of us were deeply involved in color field painting. And to this day, um, particularly 70s color field painting, I'm talking about Dan Christensen, um, let's see who else people I see on the internet all the time. Um, and in California, Ron Davis, um, which may not mean anything to you, uh, but uh, it was, there were things that we liked and, and things that we found interesting and things that needed exposure, but nothing that ever became a part of our life the way pop art did. What became, um, the most interesting and acting part of our personal lives, and eventually also Jack uh, in the gallery, uh, because I really encouraged him to become deeply involved in the gallery, and it was photography. And photography is still um, probably my second greatest love after pop art. Uh, we collected a lot of photography. Uh, in, in the many hundreds and hundreds uh, of images, beginning with um, typical School of Ansel Adams and uh, on to conceptual photography like Robert Cumming. And I like fashion photography and still do. I'm sitting in my living room the other day thinking, thank goodness I still have the helmet Newton. <laughs> um, I was really interested in, in fashion photography. Um, I collected uh, movie photography. Uh, people weren't looking much at the hired photographers of um, the studios in Hollywood and they were making some very interesting photographs, uh, both old uh, beginning in the 1930s to contemporary. And, um, I bought the estate of one of the 1930s photographers whose name was Max Bonatri, and I gave it to uh, the Laguna Art Museum so that my students studying museum studies could go down and make an exhibition of it. Mm. Uh, wow. 
uh, the, uh, his name was Maximum Autry, and he was an interesting photographer. Uh, there were several uh, Hollywood photographers. It's interesting. Uh, one named Sidney. Mm -hmm. I was just saying that it's interesting you mentioned that because it seems like you would have been collecting it right around the time that John Baldessari was collecting for his own collage work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we had the funniest. Was it John Baldessari or was it? No, it was uh, John Jonathan Brofsky. We had a really strange conceptual experience with Jonathan Brofsky. And it, it was simultaneous with our interest in John Baldessari as well. I loved John Baldessari from the time we met him in the 70s. Um, but um, Jack began getting boxes of numbered sheets of paper at the gallery, and they, they would be delivered in, you know, boxes about as big as my computer screen this big with several thousand pieces of paper in them, each piece of paper with a single number on it. And numerous of these boxes arrived at the gallery with no identification of any sort, and nobody could find anybody who would claim them. And we asked around among all of our art friends and all of the artists we knew, and um, finally it got to be too many boxes of blank paper with a number in the corner, so Jack just threw them all out. And of course, it was John uh, John Borofsky's original conceptual project, and it all went in the trash. <laughs> he for three years he sat and thought about conceptual art, and. It, while doing so, numbered pieces of paper to keep himself busy. And he boxed up the numbered pieces of paper and sent them to the Jack Glenn Gallery, but didn't tell anybody. So we, <laughs> that's what happened to <laughs> Jonathan Borofsky's original art, long gone in the trash. Which somehow uh, seems maybe perfect for, you know, right? A, yeah. A kind of appropriate conceptual yeah, well, way for that word. But yes, that is also the time frame in which uh, John Baldessari was doing. Think how some of John Baldessari's early things relate back to Tom Wesselman's work. Yeah. Uh, the coincidence uh, and the, the combination of photography and uh, painting of common images and... Uh, uh, conceptual ideas, all, all in it. I, this seems, I don't know that anybody's ever suggested it, but it, it feels like some of the same things were going on um, in the mind of John Baldessari at the time. Yeah, that's a really interesting point for, with very different perspectives on painting, right? Oh, right. <laughs> very different. I doubt Tom would have liked John Baldessari's work, don't you? I, yeah, I think not. But I still, I still think some of the same issues are involved. No, I, I agree. I think that's, I mean, because in a way you could say that where Wesselman's work is trying to push the limits of what can continue to function as painting while fundamentally making it be painting, Baldessari is trying to kind of undo all of the rubric. Undo painting. Exactly. Undo painting entirely. So they, but using very yeah. similar uh, methods in certain ways. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. So you asked me about Tom Shaw. Yeah. Uh, the gallery opened in uh, on the 7th of May, 1970, and um, I was already nervous about not being in school um, because I 
I didn't like not being in school. And um, I, uh, I had to have a research project. And I discovered in the letters between Tom and me and Paul Bianchini that that project was not originally intended as an exhibition. It was originally intended as a Paul Bianchini book um, with the New York Graphic Society. Paul Bianchini had his own imprint uh, with the New York Graphic Society. And he had done two books that I, Diane Waldman was a friend of mine. Paul Waldman used to stay, was teaching at Davis and he would stay with us every time he would drive through the country in his Porsche uh, and his Whippet or Greyhound, um, little Greyhound, um, who used to pee on my bed. Uh, <laughs> but I knew Paul and Diane that way. And Diane had done two beautiful, beautiful drawing books. I really admired, always have admired, still do Diane's work, as well as Paul's. Both of them are special. Um, and the two books that Diane had done at the time that were Paul Bianchini books for the New York Graphic Society were a compilation of Lichtenstein drawings and one of Ellsworth Kelly drawings. Gorgeous books, just, just everything I wanted. So I wanted one of those books for Tom and I approached Paul Bianchini about making a drawing book for Tom. And um, there's a year's worth of correspondence sitting beside me with Paul Bianchini about how can we do this and how do you fund it? And the gist of the correspondence with him was he was interested in doing a book of Wesselman drawings, uh, but it was up to uh, the funder of Paul Bianchini books uh, which was the New York Graphic Society. So to be labeled, I, I notice in, in uh, rare book literature, these are all still referred to as Paul B. and Kenny books um, published by you know various uh, and assorted people that the New York Graphic Society apparently chose. Um, it was estimated at the time that the book would cost $30,000 or $40,000. And for him to okay uh, a book of drawings for Tom to go forward, he would have to have their sponsorship. And the letters are dated 1970, um, April 1971 to December 1971. And what they finally, and Paul was in Paris part of the time and in New York part of the time. And it was, oh gosh, I don't know what it would have been like if we'd had email then. <laughs> It was tortured correspondence. We would, I would wait for a letter to go to Paris and something to come back. And then uh, he missed letters in the gallery and we would go into the gallery to talk to him and he would be in Paris. Um, but finally, the gist of uh, doing a book of drawings for Tom, uh, he had not been able to get permission from the New York Graphic Society. And he would keep it on his list of wish we could do this uh and see if they ever came through meanwhile <laughs> as stephen colbert says uh meanwhile uh i in 
started teaching part-time in the art department at Cal State Long Beach. There was uh, the uh, professor who was in charge of contemporary art was on sabbatical. And I taught his classes in contemporary art beginning in 1971. And there was uh, a gallery that was run by wrote at, in Cal, at Cal State Long Beach. There was an exhibition gallery, not for students, but for other work that was run by a rotating series of professors. Um, and there were three at a time and they would show whatever those professors were interested in and could gather together. And one of the professors was um, named Jean Cooper, um, who still is right here and lives in Laguna Beach. Um, and he insisted that uh, he was, he got acquainted with us through the Jack Lang Gallery and came to everything at the Jack Lang Gallery. And I introduced him to Tom uh, and I introduced him to Wayne Tebow and um, he had visions of, he and the chairman of the art department at the time, Tom Ferreira, um, had visions of the gallery at the university becoming a viable uh, contemporary art gallery or a museum. And he insisted that I, instead of teaching part-time, that I would do this. And... Uh, I insisted for about a year, uh, the year of 1971, that I would not do this uh, because I had a six-month-old baby and I wanted to spend some time on the beach. Um, but I ultimately decided that it was a good thing to do. Uh, I wasn't interested in being a salesperson in the Jack Land Gallery, and I didn't like being out of school. Um, and teaching was just as good to me as being in class. And I did finish uh, my master's degree there and did take classes for, uh, when you transfer a, my MFA, which they did not offer to art historians at Cal State Long Beach, was finished all but thesis when I got to Cal State Long Beach. And, um, Classically, throughout the country, only six units of a graduate degree transfer. So I basically had to start over with my master's degree. So I, it, it, that's why I always say I have two master's degrees, because I had finished the one in Kansas City, except for the thesis, and I had to begin the one in California. And I got credit, I got sort of automatic credit for some of for six units, and then I sort of tested out of a few more units, and they waived the requirement for a few other units till I finally was finished, but I did have to have a thesis. And since I had spent all of 1971 trying to track down every one of Tom Wesselman's drawings, uh, I decided that I now had a place to exhibit them when I decided to go ahead and become director of the galleries that they wanted me to be director of. So instead of a book, I now needed a thesis and I now had a place to exhibit the drawings. So the drawings, the exhibition of the drawings became my thesis. I taught 
an invented class that I invented. You have to, they, the state of California had no classification for a museum director or a gallery director. So all of those of us like um, Melinda Wirtz, who was uh, so responsible for much of the wonderful things that went on at UCI, you had to teach something that was in a classification that the state of California had. So I made up the museum studies classification and decided to teach museum studies, which they could classify. So I became the first museum studies program in the West. Uh, there were others that I admired, uh, particularly uh, one at Yale. Um, but there were others that I admired on the East Coast and that I patterned the program after. But therefore, the thesis was um, how to make an exhibition as exemplified by um, the, and the catalog was the inner part of the thesis. Um, so the thesis is the how to make an exhibition part with the catalog in the middle and the essay for the catalog um, as content. It's, it's a very strange thesis, <laughs> but <laughs> they let it fly. Well, they, uh, they had a program at the time where if what you wanted to major in uh, and get your graduate degree in did not exist, you could invent it if your committee would allow it. You, you could invent your subject and if the committee allowed it, you and the university then stamped it, you could do it. And that's what happened. So I already had found, Tom and I had long correspondence in 1971 about what is a drawing, which is pretty interesting is because we went round and round about what is a drawing. Can you talk um, a little bit I, about what that debate, what that conversation was about, like what qualified as drawing? Yeah. Yeah, that it, it's, it's fun. Um, we started out thinking that uh, drawings were black and white. Um, and that, well, I, I was going to read you one of the letters, but you, you have the letters. Well, you don't have all of them, but I will see that you have all of them. But basically, um, First, I said I wanted to do, I told Tom that I wanted to do a catalog raisonné of the drawings. And he asked, He said he'd never heard of a raisonné. He wanted to know what a raisonné was. Uh, and so I told him, well, we have to find everything that uh, you consider a drawing. But before we find everything that you consider a drawing, we have to define what a drawing is. So I gave him like three choices is a drawing, something in black and white on paper or uh, some other surface. Uh, is a drawing a study or a pastel in color? Or is it a colored drawing, not a study? Or is it a study for uh, a forthcoming painting? I gave him three categories basically. And he didn't want any studies to be classified as drawings. Um, we sort of initially settled on black and white on any surface. I said first black and white on paper or canvas. And then he said, well, he had drawn on a lot of other surfaces. So he said, it's, let's say black and white on any surface. And then he said, well, there are things that aren't studies 
for paintings that are in pencil or pastel that could also be considered drawings. So let's think about that too. So at that time, with that definition, I sent a letter to the major art magazines. They were in the habit of, if somebody was doing a catalog raisonne, they would publish it and ask for responses for who owned what work. And I got a lot of responses. But I sent a letter to Art News and Art Forum, um, Art International, and a couple of other places, asking them to publish my request for people who own drawings. And I didn't define the drawings uh, as Tom and I had defined them because I wanted to see what might show up. Um, and I, I got a fair number of responses. Um, some people sent pictures. I'd love to show you one of the pictures. Some, um, Jan Vandermark sent an 8x10 black and white picture of his drawing. Uh, Jan Vandermark was the director um, in Seattle at the time and was an old friend. So, um, But people sent pictures and people sent lists. I had one person who sent a rather significant list on stationery with a, uh, a icon at the top that said stop was what it looked like. I, does that mean anything to you? Have you ever seen anything in Tom's letters that, that with an icon? No, I'll get that out because he seemed to know where a lot of things were. Um, I'd be very curious to see it. It doesn't ring a bell offhand, but yeah, it's in a pile of letters. I'll, I'll find it and see that you get a, uh, that you get a, you. You can have all of these letters because uh, I have numerous copies. One set can go to the archives and one set can go to you. That is amazing. But uh, I ended up the 1971 um, research with uh, 50 drawings. The, these are the 50 drawings. I mean, this is the list of the 50 drawings. And it... Oh, it, it's it's really interesting. If you don't have this list, surely you have this in correspondence with Tom. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, not. I, I can't see what you're holding up because the picture is not great. But I I, 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 will, I will hold it up more carefully. This is the handwritten copy of the fifty drawings, and um, I've got several copies of it. And it later got printed out, and um, but basically um, it ranges from 1964. Well, the 50th one is drawing study for large nude, so we did end up with studies, but there were at least we had found a, a corpus of 50 things that could be considered for a drawings exhibition. Um, I don't think that we ever resolved um, the way the drawing thing got resolved was sort of um, a step back to what he was most interested in the time and that was saving the uh, lap works, the lap size works. So we pretty much gave, uh, after getting all this information about the location of every drawing we could ever find, uh, we 
pretty much decided that we couldn't wrap our arms around uh, the issue of doing a catalog raisonne of drawings because we hadn't been very successful at defining a drawing and they were excruciatingly hard to find and I didn't have any help. Um, I was just one person with uh, who didn't type and still don't. <laughs> That's, uh, but we could, we found that we could control finding the lap works and they were reasonably easy to turn up through the records first of the Green Gallery and then the more difficult records of the Sydney Janus Gallery. Sorry, Connie, can I, can I, I, I just want to interrupt for a second? And it was about the drawings and, and it seems like the focus of the project shifted from the drawings to those early collage works. But um, did you work with Tom's records of all of the drawings that he had produced during that first decade when you were trying to search for them? I mean, were you aware of the records that he had um, and his recording system of the drawings? Yes. Yeah. Did he talk to you about the way he recorded uh, them and, and you know, uh, any records he had of who he had sold to and he shared all that with you? He wasn't. I found a letter yesterday that said I didn't keep track of that. And I said, oh, I thought that's not Tom. Tom kept track of everything. But I think in trying to figure out why he was saying, you know, I didn't keep track of that. I suspect our effort to find the drawings must have set him on a much more serious yeah. track to keep every piece of paper. I mean, you know he, that he was already writing his life history on the back of paintings. Yeah. I mean, he, he would write everything he could think of on the back of a constructed work uh, from everything, every medium, every date, every... I mean, they were 10 lines long on the backs of constructed works. So he was already obsessed with the history of information. But I, up until we tried to locate all those drawings, I don't think he had taken where they were seriously. I think what you have, it was subsequent to what we did. I think you're right. And it does seem that the conversations you were having with him made him really think very clearly about this terminology, like the difference between drawing and study, even like this idea that, you know, in some of the cases, things are titled drawing for or drawing from like he, there's very precise language that he's using to try to make it clear to the viewer what this thing is that they're looking at that's afterwards yeah. yeah he wasn't he didn't save the information his only record uh when we started on this was the what he called the sales slips from the green gallery he had no other documentation um, so you're saying, did he discuss his documentation of all that stuff with me? He didn't have any. Um, he had the sales slips from the Green Gallery, and then the, the, we went from there, from everything that Dick Bellamy gave us, to um, Sidney Janus. Um, the Janus records were more difficult for me and for Tom, because they kept two different sets of records. <laughs> and they didn't agree with each other. Uh, and it wasn't Conrad Janice's biggest problem at the moment. Uh, so um, it, we 
basically that's one of the reasons that we gave up because the inf uh, once you got to Janus, the information was pretty much inaccessible. Wow. Um, and I think that since we had promised a raisonné and it was pretty clear that the Janus records weren't going to provide that information, and I had what little I had gathered from the ads in the various magazines that certainly didn't provide all of it. So I didn't have it, Janice didn't have it, and Tom didn't have it. So it was almost a necessary uh, cop out. <laughs> it's like we we can't we can't call this a raisonné. Uh, and Tom was deeply interested in connecting his own history to the image that's on the cover of that catalog. The last number yeah. one, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, those were well recorded uh, for the most part. We did find some. Um, and we, it was, I, I have this sort of compulsion to finish things. And it was something that was possible to finish. Uh, to account for those works, because when he started, when he became really, really deeply involved with the large room scale works, he quit making those lap size works. And of course, the first apartment, the um, on um, Bleecker Street, I never saw. One fifty seven was the one I saw, um, the second one, and. Um, in 157, there I did see large works. Uh, Tom told me that the first one on Bleecker Street was so small, it was like an eight by 10 room and that there wasn't any room for large works in it. Uh, 157 was a long, narrow space uh, where he had large works in one end of it. Um, first time I saw it, the life-size Volkswagen was propped up against one wall. Uh, and uh, there was a sort of closed off bathroom space and kitchen space in, in the middle and a bedroom in, in the far end. Almost all of the Soho lofts were walk-ups like that. Um, no elevators, uh, illegal uh, occupancy, and long narrow spaces. Roy Lichtenstein's first loft was exactly the same, long, skinny space. Um, Ivan's was, uh, everyone I, um, all the Green Street Dragons, uh, the bowling team, Sorry. Uh, their laws were like that. Connie, can I ask you another question? Because you brought up about Tom trying to connect his history to the work that was on the, on the catalog, which is that portrait collage number one. And that's right. a story that he tells over and over again. I mean, it's in the Stealingworth book. He tells it in interviews. And it sounds to me that what you're saying is that the that's a, the sort of making of that story comes about through the exhibition that you're making with him. In other words, that idea to try to connect his history and say this is a beginning point is something that maybe became clear to him in working on this exhibition. And do you recall conversations like that in terms of building up or sort of not fabricating, but sort of clarifying that story? Um, 
because I, what you, you asked me if I knew Judy and I never met Judy. Um, I'm sure um, uh, that Monica must have met Julie, uh, uh, Judy, but I didn't. But he was, when we talked about that early work, he was very connected to the process, to the models, and how uncomfortable he was with trying to go to works beyond his the lap size. Um, and because I didn't have the opportunity to see the fabrication of any of those lap size works, I think in explaining them to me, he was probably explaining them to himself. It makes a lot of sense. And he had distinct, as he looked back over them, and he still had himself quite a few of them at the time. Um, and every time one would come on the market, he would buy it back over uh, until the day he died. He was buying back those little works. Um, he was deeply devoted to those works. I think he always, he, I'm sure he thought of them as the bridge between the kid who couldn't and the kid who could. Um, and the fact that people came to admire those little works and want them and buy them, I think was a shock to him because what he was doing when he made them, he had no idea of ever selling them. He was exploring the process and exploring collage and particularly exploring the tradition that pretty much began with Rauschenberg, of, uh, including junk. I mean, he would pick up stuff on the street, and, you know, pick up a leaf and make it into a face. And, and I think he never saw in them initially a future other than the kind of exploration he was doing. He was not at all sure of himself in any way at the time he was making those collages. Uh, he was not sure of himself or sure of his art. I don't think he was sure of anything except he loved Claire. <laughs> Everybody loved Claire. She's so special. I don't know, does that answer? It does. Yeah. Your thought? Yes, it does. Absolutely, and I was just, I mean, I guess the other thing to build on what you were saying, Jeffrey, it's interesting that then, I think, at the time, as you're saying, he was really unsure, but then retroactively, they become part of the origin story of the work that he's much... Oh, of course, yeah. Well, and the fact that retroactively, um, they were things that people coveted, I think, was quite a surprise to him and, and made that time that he was so uncomfortable with uh, end up becoming a really good time for him. It, it's kind of like when a museum won't show your work, write a book about it that satisfies you. <laughs> <laughs> same, same situation. Um, and of course now, the, the, I wish Tom almost saw the first retrospective. He proceeded in the planning of the big retrospective in Europe. He and Claire planned it together and he died right before it opened. 
Um, but he remained throughout his entire life greatly offended by the fact that no major New York museum would give him a retrospective. They were all afraid of it. I don't think that that would be the situation. Well, it's obviously not the situation now. I wish he had lived to see all the beautiful yeah. shows that exist now. Yeah, I, I was interested to, 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 I mean, we can go back to other things about some of the other exhibitions, but you brought up something that I did want to ask you about, which was the reception of his work over the years and, you know, at the sort of initial pop moment. Um, one of the things I, 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 you know, I thought was interesting was going back and looking at, at some of the people kind of reacting to his work early on. And, you know, there's this quote that I, I know I've shared with you, Jeffrey, but from Leo Castelli, who had a really negative reaction to Wesselman. When he said, you know, Wesselman, I really never found attractive. Personally, I don't. Well, he's perhaps in the first rank of early pop artists. He appeared like everybody else, but I don't know. I never took to him as I did, for instance, Oldenburg, who I've always liked and still do. I was interested, like, what do you make of that reaction? And is that reaction something that you encountered elsewhere? I mean, it's very interesting, particularly coming from someone like Leo Castelli. Uh, yeah. Um, of course, by the time Leo Castelli said that, it probably was after the Green Gallery closed and Tom was with Sidney Janis. It, do you have any, do you know any dates? It's 1969, so yeah, it would be after, after the Green Gallery. Yeah, so it's after the Green Gallery. Um, I mean, Dick Bellamy and uh, Henry Gelseller and uh, a lot of the people who made studio visits uh, on Saturday mornings, which was the history at that time, um, loved the work. I... Tom once said he couldn't paint because de Kooning had done all of his work already. Um, but the bigger influence to me in all of his work, his entire career, was Matisse. And there is a kind of what I would call awkwardness in both. I was I was looking yesterday. I had. Um, there's an exhibition that I would like to see right now, uh, a recreation of every work pictured in the Red Studio. I, I can't remember. It's a museum exhibition and it's up right now and I would just kill to see it because they brought together all the works that were on the wall in the painting the Red Studio. And um, you'll find Matisse referred to in all of Tom's work. And there is... And I was looking at the Red Studio and thinking how awkward some of that imagery is and how strange the depiction of three-dimensional space is and or how strange the depiction of perspective is. And I think that there's a lot of that same awkwardness in Tom's work. Um, and Leo Castelli's taste ran to, to graphic depictions except for Oldenburg. But the part of Oldenburg that I like is not the Leo Castelli part. I like the um, Oldenburg store. We owned work from the store. I 
loved the store. I thought it was magical. Um, and if I, I could go back and buy things I didn't buy then, I we bought a couple of things from the store and, and we also had the wedding cake. And um, But I thought this, and the store, a, a lot of the things in the store were then moved to the Green Gallery. And there was an exhibition in the Green Gallery that included um, much of what was in the store. But those things were either ugly or magic. And um, I think Leo Castelli's taste extended so much to the particular, the graphic, the um, understandably pictorial. You know, he turned Andy Warhol down too. And Andy Warhol's original cartoons that he turned down were much messier than Roy's. And he had already accepted Roy. And I think he just simply had a different kind of taste. Um, and I, my taste for Oldenburg does not coincide with Leo's. It's the very early work that is so meaningful to me. Once they became monuments, I was less interested in them. That makes a lot of sense. And I can see how in that, in that way, Wesselman really stands out for someone like Lichtenstein, does not embrace. And I, I don't think awkwardness is, is a bad word to use. That's why I refer to, to it in Matisse too, because I see so much of it in Tom's work, but awkwardness was not a characteristic of the things that Leo Costelli liked. That explains the quote. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, and then, of course, the other aspect of the reception of Wesselman that I think is also in the mix in what you're talking about is the, the reaction to him as embodying a male gaze or embodying a patriarchal gaze. And I actually have a quote from, from you in the Beyond Pop catalog where you had said that never at any time did I feel the need to apologize for the male gaze Westman was said to favor by dissenting feminists. Can you just talk a bit about your perspective on the issue of the male gaze in Wesselman? Because you actually, just to finish your quote, because I thought it was really important the way you ended it, because you also said it was precisely the art, hardly the subject matter we all championed, and that that was the reason you never at any time felt the need to apologize for the male gaze Wesselman was said to favor. Could you just elaborate a bit on, on that idea? Um, I... I don't know beyond, um, I never at any time was involved in that particular feminist program. I wasn't interested in it. I didn't believe in it. I didn't, I, it just wasn't a part of anything that concerned me. And I know that it concerned um, some people who have been, been important to art history and some people who have been important to exhibitions. Um, but I couldn't deal with an issue that I felt was essentially irrelevant to the art. Uh, I thought the idea of judging the art by someone else's perception of uh, I, I guess the worst outcome of all of this has been me too. Uh, 
but I was completely uninterested in um, the idea of judging art uh, in terms of that particular feminist viewpoint. Um, so I couldn't uh, have written an essay about the nudes um, that centered on that. And if that's what the catalog needed, then it needed something other than me. But I think what was, to add to that, though, I think one of the interesting things that actually also paralleled a quote that I really thought was interesting of yours in the, the early years uh, catalog, where you said that Wesselman's work is an art of formal considerations clothed in popular forms, is that in both cases, what I hear from you is an argument that his work is about formal issues. Oh, yeah. Yes, of course. I don't think most people understand that pop art is about formal issues. I think the subject matter was so all-consuming um, that the discussion of formal issues um, pretty much got shoved out the back door. Um, and it, it, the subject matter seemed to me to be a reflection of post-World War II uh, flourishing of our life and our economy. And the subject matter was everyday life to me, and I didn't see why it shouldn't be part of, uh, part of art. It wasn't alarming to me in any way, but it alarmed a lot of people. And people didn't want soup cans and um, uh, commercial images and, and billboards. Uh, they, they found a lot of people, and you understand that the people buying art and spending serious money on art were the generation of my parents, uh, who had their history in the Depression. I was born in the middle of the Depression. Um, and everything about, I, I always said when I went to Europe, uh, when Jack was in the Air Force and right after we were married, I was 21 when we were married and uh, 22 or three when we went to Europe. And I did not realize that the center of art had been shifted to New York. I went to Paris hoping to see contemporary art. And um, my college, my original college education ended with Picasso. Uh, so I, I, and I think that the response to pop art came from the big collectors um, like the Skulls who uh, were able to assimilate contemporary images into their brains as art. I don't think it was any trouble for my generation. Does that make any sense at all? It does. And, and I think you, you had talked early on about your interest in design and also your training in design. And it does seem like, you know, you just mentioned all the, that, that Tom's interest in formal issues and the focus on that, or that being the sort of driving force and, terms of him, his making work, that's the place where the two of you really aligned. Tom was hugely interested in the 
formal issues. He talked a lot to me about the flatness of the canvas. Um, and his phrase was, it's stretched as tightly as it could be stretched from edge to edge, visually. Not, not actually, but well, yes, actually too, but visually stretched from edge to edge. And then we went on from talking about stretched from edge to edge uh, versus extending from the canvas into the viewer's space, which was very typical of a lot of pop art. And remember my telling you that I, the reason I preferred uh, Great American New number 24 to number 26, which was the mayor. Because it had a better design. Was because... <laughs> Well, our image was falling off the canvas into the viewer's space, and the mayor image was contained within the canvas, and that made all the difference in the world to me. Uh, but when you go back and think about all of Tom's contemporaries, not only were they deeply involved in the flatness of the canvas, but they were deeply involved in using the viewer's space. Yeah, that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, I actually think that's a really interesting thing. Uh, Jeffrey and I have talked about it. I, I don't know if it's it's come up in our discussions before, but Tom's relationship to the viewer's space I find really fascinating, right? Because with the still lifes, right, especially the three dimensional ones, yeah, you know, they 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 have they are three dimensional, and yet there were all these other artists of a similar period were making environments and he was so firmly not making environments. Not right. making environments. <laughs> he was uh, really affixed to the idea of the flatness of the, the canvas, the flatness of the space. And I don't, he obviously began to, after the heart of pop art, he began to think a lot more about uh, occupying the viewer's space because again, he began to make a lot of three-dimensional works, the, uh, patently three-dimensional rather than optically three-dimensional. Right, and yet trying to in some way still make them function as something to be looked at rather than something to walk into. Oh yeah, uh, something you didn't walk around behind. No, no typical sculpture. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, 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 so it's a really interesting thing that he's interested in that tension, but he never breaks fully to the other side where it would become a sculpture, become an environment, become an object in space rather than something that you, you look at that moves towards. I think he gave that a try with the, um, oh, what do you call the, uh, images that are all stacked on the floor, some in front of some. Oh, the standing still lives. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the standing still lives. I, that was the closest he ever came to, but you couldn't go behind those. Right, definitely, can't, yeah. Then you're looking at yeah, then you're looking at the back of the picture. Well, I, so there's so I know we're we're running um, uh, short on time. So there are two things that I wanted to get in before before we finish up. And one is uh, the one we didn't talk about your the the intimate images show, but but this sort of connects with that is that. You have actually, you know, you've been following, you followed his career through his entire life. And I was interested in what you saw as significant paradigm shifts 
like moments that would stand out to you as fundamental shifts in his approach throughout his career? Well, the most significant shift is the abstract paintings at the time of his death. I mean, those were shocking and so beautiful. And everything he ever would have wanted from de Kooning. <laughs> After he said, de Kooning has made all my art. Uh, to, to go back, uh, I said, how can you do that when you, you defined your entire career as non-abstract? He said, well, I couldn't throw away those beautiful pieces that were laying on the floor. <laughs> but nothing was more significant than that. Um, you can divide it up into um, between the classic pop art um, and his the last abstract works, which I thought were staggeringly beautiful. Um, and such a shock to me uh, because I had just completed an exhibition of the studies of the sunset nudes and I was wild about the sunset nudes. Um, my least, the, the things I connected with the least of his work were the wall drawings, the uh, three-dimensional wall drawings. And I have no idea why. They just didn't stir me in the same way that like the Sunset Nudes did. Probably because the material that I love the most is most closely related to Matisse. I don't know. I haven't given that any thought. Um, but, when, but you seem to really like the handmade things, though, right? Yes, I, I, I like the handmade things. That's perfectly clear. That's an interesting thing about which of the artists... I like prints. I like works on paper a lot, and I like prints a lot. And which among the early pop artists who whom I was close to were actually um, elegant printmakers? And Tom was not an elegant printmaker. Roy was an elegant printmaker. Uh, oh, the, the finest of the printmakers of the entire generation is Wayne Tebow. Uh, he, most anybody would give their life for a Tebow etching. <laughs> uh, I was at, at the Lagoon Art Museum looking at Tebow etchings yesterday. And they are just exquisite. There isn't a one. Um, Wayne made uh, a couple of prints with Gemini and in Los Angeles, and, and they kept Sydney kept asking Wayne to come back, but Wayne didn't want to make anything but etchings, and, which confined him to Kathan Brown's studio in San Francisco. Um, and the etchings that have come from that studio are phenomenal. And, and ultimately, the Gemini did put in an etching studio and a lot of, I think Roy used the etching studio. I would have to go back and see who, who of the pop art, because virtually all of, except Andy Warhol, I think they made one Warhol as a, it was a fundraiser, a presidential fundraiser, but Warhol was not a resident printmaker at Gemini. But most of the pop artists, excluding Tom, had been printmakers at Gemini at one time. 
And I never felt that Tom was as present in his prints as he was in his other art. Uh, I don't know, Jeffrey? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that, that kind of printmaking, like that kind of etching, um, that kind of process was not something that he really got involved no. with. I mean, he worked with printmakers, especially sort of mid-career and on, but I think the printmaker really did um, was, a lot of the work. Yeah. I mean, obviously he was involved with all the decision-making and the design and everything, but um, it's not quite the same as the artist actually doing an etching plane, yeah. right? And I don't, and Tom didn't do anything like that. Roy did a lot of woodcuts that were very physical. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that's why I don't think of Tom as a printmaker was because there was never any indication of anything really, any real physical involvement right. in his prints. I love the images, but they're just as good in a book to me. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, the focus of his energy was on the original work. Yeah, that's... Um, I am surprised that he never wrote about the work significantly again himself after the Slim Stealing Work project. Because he wrote quite well. Right, he doesn't... Sum, I mean, because that book really sums everything up. You mean you think that that book summed everything up and he didn't feel that it did? No, no, no. He sums, he sums everything up up to that point, but he doesn't come back again later in the 2000s and do like, a, you know, a follow-up to, to talk about that history from 1980 well, on. How do you suppose? I, I mean, I know that the Slim Stealingworth project was a reaction to his inability to have a major exhibition in New York. That's what caused that right. project. Um and Claire was a constant companion on that project. Um, but had he simply given up the idea of finding a way to put his word into the issue? Or did he not want to write about the art again? Or what do you think happened? Because it continued to be a problem. Right. Yeah, I mean, there are short essays about either, you know, one issue or a, or a group of works. I mean, he did write sort of short uh, catalog essays um, for the abstract work and then also for, for, for the other work. And he recorded his thoughts in diaries and things like that. But there's no sort of formalized summation the way there is in the Stealing Work book. And it, it would be sort of amazing to to see that. I think the Again, just like the printmaking, you the focus ends up just being on the painting. There's an essay about the abstract work. Sorry, you said there's an essay about the abstract work uh, at the very end. Uh, he wrote something for one of the Janus catalogs describing the process. So they're very short. Oh no, I'm talking about 2004. That discussion actually leads me because unfortunately we're going to have to wrap up, but leads me to like one thing I really wanted to ask, which is sort of how you see Wesselman's legacy, how you see his impact continuing into today and continuing on to artists working today, or, or, you know, or even his impact in artists, you know, kind of throughout his career, like where you see his work um, kind of having a legacy. You should ask that of a 25-year-old art historian. Um, I find it almost impossible to describe what people of another generation are finding 
in work that I found something in. I, I don't think that, I truly meant, I don't think I'm a good person to answer, answer that question uh, because what I found in Tom's work is, I would imagine, 100% different than what uh, a young person or a young collector or a young historian might find in that work today. I assume that they find a huge interest in composition. I would assume that they would find an interest in media. I mean, in uh, the whole history of collage is um, a topic of interest to almost everyone today. And Tom is a deep part of the history of collage. Um, so I would think that that would be something else that they would respond to would be um, the only other person uh, who would have a significant influence in street materials and collage uh, in the same time frame would be Rauschenberg. And I think that most young people respond to Rauschenberg as one of the most significant artists of the 20th century, uh, along with Jasper Johns, who I see has a new exhibition uh, coming. I, I don't personally respond to Jasper Johns' work, and I don't, I've never known why, uh, because I was deeply involved in Rauschenberg's work and loved Bob. And I think a lot of my issues came from how I felt about the people as well as how I felt about the work. They were so in, inextricably in, to combined that uh, even asking me at this late date to separate them is very difficult. Um, and um, John's just isn't uh, a, a person who responds to people, so um, maybe that's maybe that's why I'm not deeply involved in that. Um, what would other young people think we have? new in our environment because of Tom's work, or I, I think part of it is a, a, the legitimacy of graphic design. We have learned, all the generations since mine have learned to involve ourselves deeply in graphic design and architecture. I'm as interested in architecture as I am in any other art form. Um, and I'm still very interested in graphic design. And those in the pop art day were stepchildren. And I think those um, inclinations among people who make art nowadays, uh, there is no hierarchy that would keep graphic design or uh, any of its relatives uh, in collage in uh, a lower part of the hierarchy. I mean, it, painting, in, in the time of abstract expressionism, painting was the height of uh, the hierarchy. And 
if pop art has left us with anything that's influenced every generation since then, it's a revision of that hierarchy. Yeah, that makes that that makes a lot of sense, and I and I think that Wesselman's work is an, is a particularly interesting contribution to that because he was so invested in the history of art. Oh yeah. Does that get you um, where you want to go? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was just, I mean, I, it was it truly had no goal in mind. I just wanted to know what you thought uh, about that question. So absolutely. Thank you so much, Connie, uh, for doing the second round. This was wonderful, uh, as, as was the first one, and I learned so much. So, yeah, um, really looking forward to continuing to talk to you about Wesselman. But, but yeah, thank you again for, uh, for doing another one. I love doing it. It makes me uh, look back at my own records and own thoughts and uh, see what happened 50 years ago.